we are skipping over the story of the man that Time Magazine ranks as the 34th most significant person of all times, two behind Ronald Reagan, uh, nine behind Plato, and just 33 spots behind Jesus Christ. In our sermon series, Blueprint, God's Plan to Build His Church, we've been walking through the book of Acts, and there's just so much to cover in here in the course of eight weeks, that is, that we really should take maybe a whole year to do the book of Acts sometime. What do you think of that? No? Okay, we'll move on after next week. But we're making some choices. And so instead of covering the life, the story, the conversion of the Apostle Paul, today we're going to look at one of his most impactful sermons, and rather one of his most adventurous mission trips. The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he finds himself in the city, the renowned city of Athens. But it was never really the apostle's plan to go here. His goal was instead, if you can see the map, to go into the northern part of Asia Minor. But it was Jesus himself who appeared to Paul, or actually stopped Paul, and said, no, 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 different plans. You're going to keep heading west. You're going to go into Europe. God gave him a vision while he was in Troas of a man calling him over into this part of the world. And Paul went. Paul got to share the gospel in the city of Philippi, and there he built one of his most supportive congregations. He got to talk about the resurrection in the city of Thessalonica, and he went down to the city of Berea, where there was a dream church, a church that didn't take just everything that the apostle said at his word, but the Bereans took everything that Paul said and compared it to what scripture said. And then the apostle made his way down to Athens by himself, awaiting his mission partners there. The Apostle Paul found himself alone in what was quite possibly the most academic, intelligent, and culturally savvy city in all of the ancient world. Arguably, Paul was there past Athens Prime, but still, the Apostle Paul would have found himself in the city, which was a force culturally, artistically, philosophically, and religiously. And at the height, and the literal height of it all, stood a temple. A temple that was dedicated to the patron goddess of that city, Athena. What we've come to, and below it was the hill called Ares, or Mars Hill, or the Areopagus, where Paul went, and there he did what he normally did, and he began to engage people in conversation. A conversation that centered around Christ. He ran into two groups of philosophers there. In one corner, Paul met the Epicureans. In the other corner was the Stoics. Epicureans believed that, yes, God created the world, and sure, there is a God, but he's not interested. He's not interested in the world or people in it. And so the ultimate goal for our life is to eat, drink, and be merry. Find pleasure, avoid pain. And the other goal in the other corner was the Stoics. Stoics, who also believed in God, believed that there was a God and, and his soul is in the world. And so our highest good, the thing that we should live for, is avoiding pain and avoiding pleasure as well. And it's to these people in this place at this time that the Apostle Paul gives them a drastically different worldview. Uh, he presents to them a concept, a concept that actually in Paul's time had just recently been coined or named as Christianity. And in presenting them about Christianity, about Jesus, about what the resurrection actually means, 
the Apostle Paul challenged them. He had challenged their religious views, but he also challenged their intelligence, calling them ignorant for what they did not know. He challenged them to think about, do you really know what you worship? And he preaches in a sermon to these people that makes them think about what they worship. It makes us think about what we worship as well. Our lesson for today is from Acts chapter 17. It's printed on the inside of your service folder, and also uh, it will be on the screen behind me. This morning, we're going to take the entire reading all at once, and so I invite you to follow along. We're in Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues, both with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him into a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to them, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are in every way very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. No, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is the word of God. In what is the Apostle Paul's longest sermon recorded, he goes right at the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. In this this sermon, the Apostle Paul makes some bold claims that this is the God who created the world. And this God who created the world, he demands that you worship him. Imagine how that seemed to these 
to these philosophers who are sitting in the shadow of the, of the pantheon, who are sitting in gardens full of busts and other statues of gods, including gods they had no idea about. Must have been a tough pill to swallow. But the Apostle Paul doubles down on the bold claims that he was making and said not only does he demand that you worship him, he demands that you worship him exclusively. I don't know, perhaps you've heard this sermon before in Sunday school or you've heard uh, this story, rather, preached in a sermon in church. And oftentimes we, we marvel at this story and we see how the Apostle Paul takes masterfully a illustration given to him by the Athenians and he points out with skill and with art the thing that they knew. He points out what they don't know and he connects it to Christ. We look at this story so often and we say, yeah, Paul, that's the way you preach to pagans, preach to people who don't know about God's word. And then we close the book. But before we do that this morning, I want to step back just for a second. I want to step back just for a moment and put ourselves, well, in the shoes of these philosophers and really ask yourself why. Why would this highly intelligent group of people have a God that they knew nothing about? Why would they go out of their way to put a statue, to make a statue for a God they didn't know anything about? If you think about it, they're really just hedging their bets. They're hedging their bets religiously. Do we, do we understand what that phrase means, hedging your bet? An example of it might be the weatherman who predicts that the storm is going to come at noon or it's going to break apart or it's going to go out over the ocean. The weatherman, we would say, is hedging his bets so that no matter what happens, he's right. Hedging your bets comes from, well, the gambling world where professional gamblers will bet on one team and also bet on the opponent putting down a certain amount that matches with the odds so that no matter what happens in the outcome, to reduce your chance, they win. Hedging your bet might, might be defined this way, that to reduce your chance of failure or loss by trying several different possibilities, you try several different possibilities instead of just picking one. It's what the Athenians were doing. They're hedging their bets. They had a case of spiritual FOMO. For those of you who don't know, FOMO is the fear of missing out. The Athenians had a serious case of missing out on glorifying one God or maybe suffering the wrath of one God. And so they decided to put up a statue to an unknown God. That way, they covered all their bases. You think about what FOMO does to a person. It makes a person feel insecure. It comes from a place of uncertainty, right? That's why we have the fear of missing out on fun, on getting together with people, missing something. But it's the very same feelings that caused this fear in the Athenians. They were uncertain. They had no peace. Even though they had hundreds of gods to worship, they had no certainty that the gods they worshipped really were all for them. And they could be all for them. And so to hedge their bets, they, they set aside another god just in case. I asked you to put yourselves in their shoes. And with all the collective wisdom that we have here this morning, all the spiritual wisdom we have this morning, I wonder, do we do the same thing? Do we bet the house on our God 
Or are we hedging our bets? Well, the Athenians had one unknown god, and they had perhaps hundreds of other gods, whether it was Poseidon, Apollo, Athena, uh, Aphrodite, or Hermes. I think we might do the opposite. As Christian people, we have one God. We know who our God is. We know him as the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But are we aware of our unknown gods? Are we aware of gods that we worship, idols that we worship to hedge our bets in case God's really not going to give us what we wanted, in case I might miss out on something in case I might not get everything that I want from my God. The French historian, uh, his name is Alexis, before we get to his quote, here's our key question for the day that I want us all to think about. If you're following along with your worship guide, here's our key question. Do we understand who we worship? for the rest of our time together this morning, that's the question we're going to ask ourselves. Is Yes, we understand the God that we worship, but do we understand all of the things, all of the idols that we worship? That's our key question for today. Here is the quote that I was talking about. It kind of makes sense, right? We think about everything that passes before our eyes. We see people. We see people who are more popular, people who are more powerful than us, We see fantastic-looking Facebook families that we want to be just like. We see people that are happier, people that are having healthier bodies than us, people that have more stuff, nicer stuff, and more fun than us, and we want that stuff. And while it's not necessarily wrong to want things, how far does that go? Here's what Alexis de Tocqueville said. He said, Strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants of America. In the midst of abundance, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And what makes this this quote all the more cutting is the fact that this man was writing in 1830. He was writing well before most, if not all, of the modern benefits of abundance that we have today were being experienced and yet he noticed this he noticed this about american hearts and and his critique is not is not just for americans it's it's for every heart the heart wants the heart constantly desires and when the heart gets what it wants well it always wants more how often do we think when when i only have this then then i'll be satisfied when i just get to this stage in life and accomplish these things then well then i will be valued When I get this or do this or know this amount, have this amount, then I'll finally feel secure. What is an idol? Well, an idol can be good. It can be something bad. It's not necessarily a statue, something made out of gold or or bronze or wood. An idol is anything that we elevate the importance of to the level of the true God. And think about this, what is it in your heart that captures your thoughts, that captures your imagination, that captures your heart, your desires? That's your God. Earlier, we read the first commandment, answering that question, what what does that mean to have no other gods? He said this. He said, what does it mean to have a God? A God means that from which we are to expect 
all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress. And so what is it? What is it for you that you look to receive good? In your sermon guide, I asked a question. I asked a question that no one's going to call on you to answer here this morning, and you certainly don't have to fill out, but I left a blank. And think about it. What would go in that blank? If I have blank, then I would feel that I am, my life has meaning. Then I would feel that I am secure. Then I'm getting somewhere. Then I'm valued. What would go in that blank? That's a hard question to answer. It's a hard question to answer, especially, well, because we don't know our own hearts very well. So let me ask it the reverse way. What is it in your life that if it was gone, if it was missing, if, if God were to take it away, you'd feel like there's no point to living? You'd feel like there's no point to going on anymore? There we find our idol. There we find the things we're hedging our bets on over and against the goodness that God promises us. What are you investing in? What are you betting on? Is it your kids? Is it your family, your spouse? People, perhaps the greatest blessing that God gives in this life, good things, can they be your idol? What happens when your child disappoints you? How does that make you feel? What happens when your spouse disappoints you? Well, let me ask it this way. Who brings more joy to you when you see your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife smile at you? Or you, you read through scripture and you hear how much the Lord smiles at you as his child? Is your family, are the people in your life idols? Or is it your career? And maybe if it's not your career, is it just being good at things? Is it, is it having success and achieving things? Are you always thinking, if, if I only read this book, if I only surround myself with these people, if I only get to know this much and have this much in my bank account, then I will finally feel like I can rest. Does your self-worth come in how much people turn to you for help? Does your self-worth and your identity, is that based in what you can do and when your body starts to not let you do those things, do you feel, well, worthless? Is success, is winning your idol? Is it your popularity? Is it your standing with other people? Are you so obsessed with what others think about you and whether or not they like you that you forget what God thinks about you? Is it your romantic relationships where you feel as though that if this person were to ever leave me or break up with me, like there would be a hole in my heart so big that nothing could ever fill it? Or is the idea of singlehood for the rest of my life something that you think about as though it would be the, the curse of death? What are your idols? Is it sex? Is it sleep? Is it your hobbies? Your vacation time? Is your idol your church? Is it how much you give? Or how much you read your Bible? What's your idol? The Swiss reformer John Kelvin said this. He said, the human heart is an idol factory. Every one of us from our mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. And so it's an important question to answer. 
It's an important question to think about and not go on just being ignorant about is do I understand what I am worshiping? Because ignorance is not bliss. When God gave us his commandment, telling us that we should have no other gods, he issued with it a very, very stern warning. He issued with it a punishment. He said this. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. God is so serious about his first commandment. He is so serious about wanting us to look only to him, for him to be our highest good, that he gives us a pretty clear warning. Turn from your ignorance, repent of it, or you will be without a God. But, but, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God finishes his first commandment with a promise. And even sweeter than the promise, our God finishes it out by, by showing us a way that we can keep this promise, that he can keep this promise. God who made the as our God. Listen to what Paul says in his sermon. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Think about that. The God who created the world also created you. He gave you life and breath and everything else. Do you understand what it means to have everything else in your God? That means you have everything in your God. There is nothing else that you want. There could be nothing else than you need, for God promises and he will give it to you all. And first and foremost, the most important thing that he gives us is himself. Paul goes on. He said, from one man, he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. In, our, in the sinfulness of our heart, the blackness of our heart, all of us are like blind people. Blind people in a, a totally dark, completely dark cave groping about looking for the things we so desperately want. We want peace. We want joy. We want love. We want purpose. We want confidence. As we grope about trying to find these ourselves, looking in all the wrong places, building temples and altars, and looking to the idols on our hearts, this is where our God steps in, and he reveals himself to us. Our God, who made us, who gave us life and breath and everything else, moved time and history, he came and he set aside the appointed times and places that you should live, where you should live, and, and how you should live, and he did it. Why? Paul tells us God did this so that they, you, would seek him and people reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. While we are groping about in darkness, our God came and he gave us himself. He gave himself, if you will, a light. The light of his love, the light of his world. 
where we turn it on and no more do we grope about, walk about in darkness, seeking, searching for God's, but he has found us. And when we seek him where he may be found, it's him who finds us and who gives us life and breath and everything that we need. And we live and we move and we are his offspring. And that means that we can depend on him totally. As a, like a lost little child who, who sees their parents and who the parents find them and he clings to them with all their might That is the picture of us with our God, clinging on to him with our entire hearts, not letting go for anything. And just like an infant child in in the arms of a parent who completely and utterly depends on the mother or the father. So that is how our God wants to be in relationship to us. He wants to be your God. He says in Luther says this in the, in the response to the first article, God says in his command against idolatry, see to it that you let me alone be your God and never seek another because whatever you lack of good things, expect it from me and look for it from me. And whenever you suffer misfortune or distress, cling to me. I, yes, I will give you enough and help you in every time of need. This is the promise that God makes to you as your father. And it almost seems illogical. It almost seems too good to be true. It almost seems like I might need proof in my life if I'm actually going to bet and go all in on this, right? Well, the God who gives us everything even gives us that. He gives us proof. In the last words of Paul's sermons, listen to what he said. He said, therefore, Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. What more could you possibly want? What more could you possibly need? You have a God who wants to be your God, who went out of his way to come and find you and make you his God, make you be and make you be his You have a God who promises all good things, every good thing to you, who wants you to look to him for it. And what's more, he gives you proof that he has provided it in the greatest demonstration of his love at all. He rose Jesus from the dead. And now he judges the world. Our creator is our judge. And he judges, though, not with anger or wrath, but he judges in righteousness. He judges and when he looks at your heart, he doesn't see an idol factory anymore. But when he looks at your heart, he sees the home of his son and therefore he sees his daughter. He sees his son. I don't know. I don't know what it is for you. Is it it people? Is it your family, your husband, your wife, your kids that you look to to replace love that, that God gives? God says for all those times that you have looked for love in other places, I've given it to you. He says for all of the times where people have, have broken that love to you, I have filled that void. For greater love has no one than this, than to lay one's life 
for one's friends? Is it being successful? Is it achieving things? Is it, is it always winning, being the best? Is that what your idol is? Well, when you look to Christ and you put in the context of winning, being the best, never failing, in the context of what Christ has done for you and see that the greatest defeat, the sting, the sour taste that comes with that has been removed, it's not a fear that we have to have. Listen, Paul says, where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it people? Is it, is it always winning? Is it always accomplishing things? Or, or is it what people think of you? Is it your standing with others, whether they like you or not, that makes you feel whole? God says, I am the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. I am the one who wrote your name on the book of life. In Ephesians, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with everything, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Christ. It's the message that Paul preached to the Stoics and to the Epicureans. It's a message that one-third of the people were perhaps more rejected. It's a message that many people reject today. It's a message that some people there were curious about. They wanted to hear more about just a natural reaction we see today. But it's a message that some people that Paul preached you on that day believed. It's the message of Jesus for you. This is the picture or a recreation of what the Acropolis, of what the Parthenon, and what the Agora and what the Areopagus might have looked like while Paul was there. It's rather rather breathtaking. If you'd like, you can go on YouTube and you can take virtual tours and recreations of these places and it just leaves your jaw drop that people made these things. It's really impressive. But what's saddening is that this was not made to the glory of God. It wasn't made even to glorify people. It was made to glorify idols. And it's heartbreaking. But it's here the central message of the Bible, the message of Jesus Christ crucified and Jesus Christ risen for you, well, it's here that that message for a brief moment took center stage. For the last 40 years, this entire uh, complex, the entire Agora, Acropolis, and area, it's been under construction because over the last 2,000 years, it's all fallen apart. Every single altar, every single uh, piece of temple has all fallen apart. And so people are trying to remake it. And like I said, it's been going on, the reconstruction, for the last 40 years. And it'll probably keep going on for as long as time remains. 
You see, when we make our idols things, things out of stone, things in this world, they will always fall apart. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but over the years, those gods will break. Those gods will not give you the thing that you need. But when it's on Christ, the solid rock that you stand, well then, then we have everything. Amen.